Good morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And while you turn there, I just want to release the children, uh, those who are going upstairs uh, for the sermon hour uh, for their lesson. Uh, the children can be released uh, to go to their classes. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 8. If you would uh, join me in prayer one more time, please. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, would you meet with us in and through your word? Do you open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our righteousness, seated at your right hand, ever living to intercede for us? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you talk to your Muslim friends about Jesus? I hope that you do. And if you get into a conversation with our Muslim friends, uh, I have frequent conversations with one particular friend of mine, there are a number of questions that come up. But one question is persistent. It's come up several times and he's asked me this. So he says, Aubrey, how can you be so confident how is it that you have such certainty that God will accept you, that you will go to paradise when you die? It's a good question. Why is it that we have such confidence? And it's not exclusive to Islam. Uh, this question arises in other religious systems as well. Uh, some of you know I grew up Roman Catholic. Maybe you're here this morning and you come from that background. And even within Roman Catholicism, there was never this sense of certainty, of assurance that my sins were truly forgiven, that I was accepted as right with God. No confidence, no certainty. So what is the basis of our confidence? Well, this morning in Hebrews 8, we're going to see just that. We're going to see the basis of our confidence the source of our security, why it is that we can be so sure and assured of God's forgiveness of us and his acceptance of us. And I pray that as we look at this text, that our hearts would be filled again with this glorious assurance and confidence that we would draw near to God and hold on to Christ because he is our only hope. As we look at Hebrews 8, we will see two reasons for our confidence before God. All right, so the outline today is very simple. The passage neatly divides into two, two reasons for our confidence. First, we have the ministry of a better high priest. And that's in verses 1 to 6. We have the ministry of a better high priest. And second, we have the promises of a better covenant. That's in verses 7 to 13. We have the promises of a better covenant. So two reasons. Let's read the text. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, 
a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So you remember the context here. These Hebrew Christians had begun losing confidence. Their hope was growing thin. Their faith was wavering. They faced all sorts of persecution and affliction for their faith in Christ. And life was hard. And they were being tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus and the suffering that came with that and to go back to the old covenant system, the old covenant law, where they would feel comfortable and have a sense of security with, you know, its sacrifices and with the priests who would offer sacrifices on their behalf and the grandeur of the temple as a place to meet with God they would feel a little bit more secure. And perhaps they felt we can have a sense of being right with God. And things would be a little easier. And the author of Hebrews, like I've said many times, is a concerned pastor preaching to these people. And he basically tells them, no way. No way. There's no going back. Because you see, Jesus is better. And the main point of this central section of Hebrews from chapters 7 to 10 is just that. Jesus is better. We have a better high priest who has offered a better sacrifice, who ministers in a better sanctuary, and who brings us into a better covenant. 
You'll see these themes repeat again and again in chapters 7 through 10. We have a better high priest who has offered a better sacrifice, who ministers in a better sanctuary and brings us into a better covenant. Of course, last week, that's what we saw, that he is a better high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that leads to our first reason for our absolute confidence in our salvation. We have the ministry of a better high priest. Verse 1, look at what the author says. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Like any good preacher, he's reminding you of his main point. All right. Last week we saw a whole lot of stuff about Melchizedek. The argument was heavy and there were a number of things piled up and maybe you got lost and confused. And the author is saying, well, all of that stuff about Melchizedek is very important. But if you're feeling a little bit, you know, like your eyes are getting glazed over, if you're feeling a little bit puzzled, let me just tell you the main point. The main point is this. We have such a high priest. He told us this last week, chapter 7, verse 26. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And now he's reminding us of that. We have such a high priest. And he gives us three aspects in verses 1 to 6 why this high priest's ministry is better. All right. First, his ministry is better because of his session. His session. What do I mean by session? I mean his heavenly rule and reign. All right, look at verses 1 and 2. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Did you catch that? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You know, some people have a life verse or a favorite verse. If you ask the author of Hebrews, what's your life verse? What's your favorite verse in the Bible? Some people make, you know, Bible verses that your password on your computer. You ask him, what's your password? It says Psalm 110, verse 1 and 4. Right? Psalm 110, where David writes of God himself speaking to the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And of course, this text has been fulfilled in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, God's own son, who was made flesh, who came in the line of David, who suffered for sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and has sat down at the right hand of God from where he rules and reigns over all. He has fulfilled Psalm 110, verse 1. That's what it means. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Moreover, the fact that Jesus sat down also has implications for his priestly work as compared to the old covenant priests. You know, in the book of Leviticus, which we studied last year, and if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that God instituted a law by which his people were to approach him. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see that these men were appointed as priests, as mediators 
before, the, before God on behalf of the people, men from the tribe of Levi, and they would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Once a year, there was this special day called the Day of Atonement, in which only one man, the high priest, the high priest would offer sacrifices both for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And then with the blood of sacrifice, indicating that a death has taken place for the penalty of sin, he would come into the immediate presence of God, into the innermost part of the temple, the holy of holies, the most holy place, where God's immediate presence dwelled. And there he would make atonement for sins. Well, what the author is telling us is that Jesus is a better priest because he has done something far greater. He has entered into the holiest place, into the immediate presence of God himself, into heaven. He died once for all, paying the sacrifice for sins. He rose again from the dead, defeating death. He has ascended into heaven, being exalted on high as priest and king. And he finished off his work and sat down at the right hand of God, indicating that his work is finished. You see, in the old covenant system, the priests are always standing. They're always standing because they're always working, always offering sacrifices. The high priest comes into the Holy of Holies year after year for a brief moment and then he comes out again. And he dare not, no man could dare enter into the Holy of Holies and sit down and just have a casual conversation with God. No way. He's always standing. But Jesus, our high priest, sat down. His work is finished. The atonement that he has made is once and for all. And he rules as king and lord. He is a priest who has finished off his work and who rules forever in his heavenly session. And think about this. Who is it that can sit in the presence of God? It is only one who is God himself. Fully God, fully man, our perfect high priest. And the author is asking these people who are struggling and he's asking us, who else could be such a priest? Who could match his ministry of the one seated as a king on his throne, whoever lives to intercede and pray for us, who has offered a sacrifice once for all and finished off his work? What priest on earth can match the ministry of this heavenly priest? The answer is no one. His ministry is better because of his session. Second, his ministry is better because of his sacrifice. Because of his sacrifice, look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. This was the very essence of the work of priesthood. You were appointed, priests were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. To make atonement, to give atoning sacrifices. But you see, in the old covenant system, all of those sacrifices ultimately never procured forgiveness of sins. Rivers and rivers of the blood of bulls and goats being spilled and dumb animals being offered never ultimately cleansed the people from sin. That's why those sacrifices kept on being offered. In, in the old covenant, sacrifices function kind of like a credit card. Right? People sometimes get into a lot of trouble in the UAE because of credit cards. 
Because you use your credit card, you can swipe it, tap it, whatever, and then you assume, well, you know, the bill has been paid. No, it's not. It's just temporarily paid, it's stacking up debt, and the debt keeps piling up. And someone has to pay in cash and ensure that that debt is paid once and for all. It was the same with the sacrifices. There's kind of a temporary provision that has been made, appeasing the wrath of God, but the sins of the people have not fully been cleansed. Someone has to come and make an offering once and for all. And this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author is telling us, has done so. He is fully God, the only one who can bear the penalty for our sins. And he is fully man, just like us in every respect, yet without sin, perfectly fitted to be our representative, to be our substitute, and he offered not the blood of bulls and goats, not the blood of dumb animals, but he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, dying on the cross, taking upon himself the judgment that sinners deserve. His ministry is better because of his session, his rule, as well as his sacrifice. And third, the ministry of this high priest is better because of the sanctuary, in which he serves. The sanctuary in which he serves. Did you see what he said in verse two? He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And the author explains that further, verses four and five. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so again, we come to this uh, very important concept of how the Bible is written and how we are to read it uh, called typology, which we've talked about last week and have mentioned before in our study of Hebrews. Typology uh, is a way of understanding the Bible. It shows us that the Lord, God, Both in history, he has worked in history as well as in the writing of the scriptures in such a way such that persons, events, and institutions in the Old Testament form a pattern, a preview, and point forward to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So God has worked both in history, in the history of his people, and in the writing of scripture in such a way that persons, events, and institutions form a pattern that point us to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're intended to teach us something about Jesus. And and that's why the author says, did you see what he says in verse five? When Moses was given the instruction for building this tabernacle or tent, God gave him a particular pattern. See that you make everything according to the pattern. The Greek word is tupas, type, according to the type that was shown you on the mountain. So if you go back and read the book of Exodus, you'll see that when God saved his people from Egypt and he made a covenant with them, uh, the people are in the wilderness, they're living in tents, and God himself dwells in their midst in a tent of his own. And he gives them very particular instructions about the building of this tent. Moses couldn't just come up with any creative ideas. He had to do what God said. And this tent had three compartments. There was the outer place. There was the holy place, second compartment into which only the priests could go. 
And then the innermost compartment was the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was present. And into this compartment, only the high priest could enter once a year for just an instant on the Day of Atonement, bringing blood from sacrifice. Well, all of that was a pattern, a preview, pointing us to the one who would come, who would offer a sacrifice much greater, and who would enter into heaven's holy place itself and bring us there ultimately. This priest fulfills it all. All of that is just a shadow, just an image, just a preview. That's what the author is saying. It's like we said last week, it's like going to a fine dining restaurant and you look at the menu and then you order your food and imagine a great, fantastic meal is brought out and you say, you know, I don't want to look at this. I don't even want to smell it. I don't want to taste it. I just want to look at the picture on the menu. That's what it's like saying, I don't want Jesus. I want to go back to the old covenant sacrifices because that was just a picture. Or it's like you know, going on a fancy vacation, if you're so blessed to do so, and you arrive at this beautiful destination, and you say, I don't want to go out there and look at the sights and hear the sounds and get the smells and, and, and look at the beauty. You know, I'm just going to stay in my room and look at the pictures of this place on Google. If you're crazy enough to do that, it's crazy. And that's what it's like to abandon Christ and go back to the old covenant because that was just a pointer and a preview, just a shadow of the heavenly things. And Jesus' priesthood is far better. It's the reality that has come. His priesthood is categorically different than the old covenant priest. It's of an entirely different order and functions in a different sphere in the heavenly places. He has entered heaven itself once and for all. And there he intercedes for us and there he will lead us and bring us home. He is in the true sanctuary the very presence of God himself. His ministry is better because of his session, because of his perfect sacrifice, and because he ministers in the true sanctuary. And this, dear friends, is the ground of our confidence before God. This is the basis of our certainty, of our assurance that we are accepted before God. This is why, by the way, Bible-believing Christians don't have any appointed persons who function as priests. Unlike, for instance, in the Roman Catholic tradition where I'm from, or in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have priests who function as mediators. And we would say, no, the scriptures tell us that, that there are no longer any other mediators. We have one mediator. We have a priest who is perfect. Sometimes I meet people and they ask me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And they say, oh, you're a priest. I say, well, no, I'm not a priest. Although my visa says occupation priest. That's not what it means. I'm not functioning as a mediator here. We have pastors whose work is to teach the congregation, to lead and to care for, shepherd the congregation. But we're not priests. We have one high priest who is perfect in every way and his ministry cannot be matched. He is the one who offered a perfect sacrifice once for all. He sits on his throne as king, has finished his atoning work. He appears on our behalf in heaven, ever living to intercede for you and I. We need no one else. And here's the, here's the key. If his ministry is in heaven, if this high priest's ministry is in heaven, then it follows that nothing that happens on earth 
No circumstance that happens in this life can interrupt it or take it away. No circumstance in this life is going to prevent our priest from his perfect ministry for us. And from that we can have such great comfort and peace, such great joy and assurance. We can think of John Bunyan who wrote the great book Pilgrim's Progress in his own autobiography, his testimony, which is called Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners. He talks about an incident one day where he was walking in a field and as he was going along in this field, he began to just feel great pangs of conscience, a great sense of guilt as he thought about all his sins and all the ways that he had failed and fallen short of God's glory. And then all of a sudden he says, even as he was feeling this great weight of guilt, uh, this one sentence came to his mind and was impressed upon his heart. Your righteousness is in heaven. And then he says, I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness for my righteousness was ever before him. Moreover, I saw that it is not my bad frame of heart my bad feelings that made my righteousness worse, nor was it my good frame of heart or my good feelings that made my righteousness better, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's true of us, so that whatever you're going through, whatever's happening in your life right now, whether you're having a good day or bad, your righteousness, dear brother or sister in Christ, is before the throne of God above, and so we can sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Hallelujah. What a great high priest. We have such confidence, such assurance of our eternal destiny, because the ministry of our better high priest in his session in his sacrifice and in the heavenly sanctuary cannot be matched. And if that were not enough, the author adds another reason for our confidence. We have great confidence first because we have the ministry of a better high priest and second because we have received the promises of a better covenant. We have received the promises of a better covenant. That's the second reason for our confidence. 
Look at verse 6. This is a transitional verse. The author makes the transition here in verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. His ministry as high priest is not just better, it is much more excellent, and it is much more excellent to this degree, the author says, to the degree that we have received and he has established a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises than the old covenant. So this year brings us to a very important concept in scripture, in fact, a central concept in understanding the Bible, the concept of covenant. What, what is a covenant? What does he mean by the, telling us that we have a better covenant, that Jesus mediates a better covenant? See, in the Bible, God's relationship with human beings is always defined in terms of covenant. Any relationship that God has with his creatures, with us as humans, is defined in terms of covenant. So it's important that we understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a committed relationship. It is a committed relationship marked by loyal love and faithfulness and built on binding promises. Let me say that again. A covenant is a committed relationship marked by loyal love and faithfulness and built upon binding promises. It's a bond between two entities. It's kind of like marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. You pledge to one another commitment, loyal love and faithfulness till death do us part. And so in the Old Testament, as we read our Bibles, we see that God initiates his plan to save his people through a series of covenants. He calls the forefather of the people of Israel, Abraham, and our father in faith, and God made a covenant with Abraham and made promises to Abraham. Later, God redeemed his people from Egypt, the people of Israel. He brings them out of Egypt, rescues them from slavery, brings them to himself. And then if you read Exodus chapters 19 to 24, God establishes a covenant with them. To be their God, their Lord, and their king, Israel enters into this sort of marriage relationship with God, a committed relationship, and then there are terms on both sides. The people of Israel were expected to live in obedience to God's law. This was their side of the covenant, that they were to obey God's commands and live in obedience to his law. But what happened? They failed. They failed. There was a problem in the covenant. It ultimately ends up being broken. And that's the logic that the author wants us to see here. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, verse 7, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the old covenant was enough, and, and these people wanted to go back to it, sometimes we as Christians, we don't want to go back to the old covenant, but we begin to think that we can earn our right standing before God on the basis of our own works and obedience, which is false. If that first covenant had been faultless, then why would God speak of a new covenant? Why is there this other covenant that has been promised in Scripture and that has now come? That's the author's logic. He says when God says new, it means the old is old. 
It's done with. Now, I don't know about you, but I am notorious with this issue with my apps, even with my computer and whatever it is. I don't know if you have this problem, but you have apps on your phone that keep telling you you need to update. You know, the laptop tells you you need to update the operating system, and I just click later. All right, so I keep de deferring, feel kind of lazy. I'm busy with something, I'm not gonna do it right now. And then after some time, you open the app, maybe it's happened with the Al host, and you go and you open it, and then it doesn't work, because you didn't update. And it says, app needs to be updated before you open it, right? There's kind of a redundancy there. It won't work anymore. That's what's happened with the old covenant. It's old, it's obsolete. This summer, I took an old computer of mine to the computer store. Uh, for service, and they said, we don't service this anymore. This, this is obsolete now. It's old. You can't use it any longer. Something new has come. That's what's happened with the old covenant. And what was the problem with it? It wasn't. It was revealed by God himself. God's law was all good. God's revelation is always perfect. The problem with the covenant, you see, was the people. The people had hard hearts. The people had hearts that did not enable obedience to God's law. Their hearts were flawed. There was a flaw on the human side. At the end when they broke the covenant and there's sort of this divorce between God and the people, this is an at-fault divorce with all the fault on the human side. And it was not even the purpose of this covenant. It was not the ultimate purpose of the old covenant that people should receive ultimate forgiveness of sins and dwell forever with the Lord. Because the covenant had a different purpose, you see. It was kind of like a mirror. The mirror can show you how dirty you are. It can't clean you up. You can't use a mirror to wash your face. The old covenant was kind of like a doctor who writes a prescription that tells you what the problem is with your health. But that's not the medicine. The old covenant revealed the problem of sin, but it didn't solve that problem. The people's hearts were wicked and they broke that covenant. And that's what he says in verses eight and following. He finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. Skip down to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this summer, at the urging of my sweet wife, I finally bought a new pair of shoes. As the old ones have been worn now for over 10 years, and uh, someone actually after the first service told me, yeah, we noticed. And I'd kind of grown very comfortable in these old shoes, but it was time. And something has happened when we came back to Abu Dhabi. I'm wearing the new shoes, the old ones have vanished. <laughs> They've grown old. They will never be seen again. The old covenant is obsolete. It won't work anymore. The fullness, the reality of it, Christ has come. And so we only, when we read the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament in light of Christ, in light of the fact that he fulfills it, in light of the fact that all of it points to him. And we can never try to earn our right standing with God on the basis of that old covenant. It has reached its expiration date, the author says. 
The Lord has established a new, a better covenant. And this time, this covenant will not be broken. This covenant will not be broken because its mediator is so much better. The mediator of this new covenant who guarantees its promises is Christ Jesus our Lord, the Son of God himself. He is our representative and he has done everything that is required on the human side. He acted as our representative and he has kept all things perfectly. This new covenant is based on better promises. Better promises that are guaranteed by God himself. Let's look at verses 10 to 12. And I want you to notice all the first person pronouns here. Where God himself is speaking and guaranteeing the promises of the covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more more. God himself takes the initiative. God himself executes the plan. God himself guarantees the fulfillment of his better promises. And we see four better promises there. Let's unpack those. Four better promises that are a part of this better covenant package. First, we have transformed hearts. In the new covenant, we have transformed hearts. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now you may notice there in verse 10, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And sometimes some readers of the Bible when interpreting passages like this will say, oh, this is reserved only for the Jews, for the people of Israel. And it doesn't apply to Gentile Christians today or to the church. These are promises made to Israel. It says house of Israel. And I want to submit to you that that would be uh, an erroneous way of understanding these promises. Because if you read the New Testament, Jesus, when he is uh, about to die, says that he is establishing the new covenant in his blood. When he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus establishes his new covenant with all who have faith in him. And the covenant promises of the Old Testament are extended now to include all those who trust in Jesus. Israel itself has been redefined by what Christ has done to include both Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ. So Israel is now fulfilled in the church and this covenant is with the church. And God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone, external to the people. Something that stood outside of the people and stood there in accusation, bringing condemnation upon them, showing them their sin and their inability to meet its standard. 
But in the new covenant, we don't have God's law written on tablets of stone. No, God writes his law on our minds and in our hearts, which means he gives us the desires to obey him and the ability to live in obedience to him. The gospel enables us to obey God. The power of sin has been broken in the Christian's life. So just like that old Puritan John Berridge would say, run John and work, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Much better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation, we are truly new. God has given us hearts that are obedient to him, that desire obedience, that know his word and his law. And so I want to say this, in your pursuit of godliness, in your pursuit of holiness, in your pursuit of spiritual growth and sanctification, in your fight against sin, you are not going against your nature or against who you really are. No, all of it, you are fighting to become what you already are. You are fighting to conform to what God has made you to be because if you are in Christ, you are new creation and power, sin's power has been broken in your life. God has written his law on our hearts and we are truly new. And so the Christian can say like, that old story about Dr. Christian Barnard, if you've heard. Uh, Dr. Christian Barnard, the story is told of him, he was the first surgeon to ever perform a heart transplant. First surgeon to perform heart transplants. And one day with one of his patients, he suddenly had this urge, he talked to the patient after the surgery and said, would you like to see your old heart? And the patient said, why, yes, I'd love to see what you've done there. And so the next day he brought out this jar with the patient's heart in it. And the guy receives it, and probably the first human being ever to hold his own heart in his hands. And he looked at it in this jar and he said, ah, so this is my old heart, which caused me so much trouble. He says, take it away. And he never wanted to see it again. Spiritually speaking, that's what's happened to us, dear Christians. The old self is gone. Behold, something new has come. We can obey the Lord. That's the first promise of this new covenant. We have transformed hearts. The second promise is that we have membership. We become members in God's covenant people. We become members in God's covenant people. Did you see verse 10? I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is just beautiful marital language. It's the language of marriage vows where God pledges himself to his people in an eternal intimate bond to be our God, that we shall be his people. And now we belong to this new covenant community. You know, all of us who are Gentiles, we didn't have this in the old covenant. We were aliens, strangers, removed from God's promises. But now God has brought us in. He has made us members of his family, citizens in his kingdom. What a great blessing that we belong to a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, to a family of people from every tribe and tongue and nation that go, will go on forever. 
And you know, this is why, by the way, we keep impressing upon you the importance and centrality of church membership in the Christian life. It's not because we just want to have a list of names or get your name on the list or just to give you privileges to come to meetings and hear updates and vote. No, it's because church membership is a covenant commitment. It's a covenant relationship where we live out the new covenant together. The fact that we are members of God's covenant family. That's why it's so important to make that commitment and belong to the family of God. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing given to us as a gift because of what Jesus has done. We have transformed hearts, that's promise number one. We become members of God's covenant people, that's promise number two. We enjoy personal knowledge of God, promise number three. Personal knowledge of God, verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And you know what God is promising here is not just that you will know something about him. Although he has given us such riches of revelation in scripture that we might know so much about him. No, he is promising personal knowledge that we will know him. You might know something about King Charles III, the new king. You could find out a lot about him. You might go on Google and look him up and you might find out a lot of things and know about him, maybe even things that you didn't want to know. But we can't claim that, even if you knew a lot about you can't claim that you know him or that he knows you on a personal level. But if you are in the new covenant in Christ, then you know the living God, the creator, the God of heaven and earth. We know him personally. No more mediators except one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son himself. No more priests through whom we stand at a distance and hope that we might know something of God. No, immediate access to know him, to boldly approach him in prayer. And did you notice what it says? All of them shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Children can know God. I want to speak to the children in the congregation this morning. You can know God. You can truly know him. If you come to him in faith in Christ, you can know the living God. And, and sometimes people look at this and say, oh, well, maybe this means we don't need any more teaching, right? Because it says in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Well, that would be an inaccurate interpretation. Of course, in the New Testament, we see again and again the office of pastor and teacher is emphasized that we do need instruction and equipping in God's word. But what that is meaning to say is that in the Old Covenant, things were fundamentally different because there was only a small minority of people who knew the Lord. You had so many Israelites and the vast majority of them sinned and rebelled and followed after idols. There was just a small minority of people who were faithful and who trusted in God's promises. They were called the remnant, just a min minority. And you always had throughout the Old Testament this minority pressing it upon others saying, Oh, know the Lord, come back to our God, repent. Well, in the New Covenant, things are not that way. It's entirely different. The entire covenant community, all of us in the church who are knowing Christ, are sanctified. All of us know Him. The vast majority of people in, 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 in the New Covenant 
are saved. We know the Lord. We trust in his promises. And so what this means is that the church should look fundamentally different from old covenant Israel. That we're not constantly trying to, you know, press it upon each other and goad one another. Come on, you've got to know the Lord. No, this, this is our nature. This is who we are. That we love the Lord and that we love one another. And so brothers and sisters at ECC, I want to ask you, are there ways as a church that we should grow in this? It's, it's kind of concerning, isn't it, sometimes when uh, we have 515 members who are committed to the church, yet we come to the prayer meeting where all of us who know God are drawing near to the throne of grace and 50 people show up, 10%. That's kind of disturbing. Because all of us know him, are to know him. We're not needed to constantly have people pressing upon you and, and, and urging you to more faithfulness and urging you to be a part of the people of God. No. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. God has done something new and his people should reflect that newness. So we've seen three of these glorious promises. We have transformed hearts. We become members in God's covenant people, we, have, we enjoy the personal knowledge of God, but the last promise here is most crucial and it is central to all the rest. This is what makes it all possible. The last promise here is forgiveness of sins. We receive forgiveness of our sins. Did you see that verse 12? I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is the great blessing of the new covenant and of the Christian life. You see, in that old covenant, there was no guarantee of forgiveness. Sacrifices kept on being offered day after day, year after year, oceans of the blood of dumb animals being spilt. But those sacrifices are just constantly bringing a reminder of sins. That's why they had to be repeated. True forgiveness was not achieved. And true forgiveness is promised nowhere else and in no one else but in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his new covenant. And you see, this is vital for us, isn't it? Because when we look at ourselves, we know that all of us are sinners and forgiveness is our most desperate need. And I love how Charles Spurgeon says, truly dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day, will furnish him material for his charges. Yesterday, you were impatient. The day before, you were proud. Another day, you were lazy. And on another, angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue for as long as he pleases. For we are all together as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But here in Hebrews 8, 12, the infinite, almighty God the omniscient God of heaven and earth who sees all things, who knows all things, who knows the depths of our hearts, who owns all things, who is infinite in his knowledge, blazing in his purity, who remembers all things, that God says, I will remember your sins no more. 
How? How is this possible? Because Jesus said, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And the one who is the Son of God, who is fully and truly God, who took on flesh and became fully and truly man, fully human, just like you and me, except without sin, went to the cross, died on the cross, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners, pouring out his blood, taking upon himself the penalty for our sin, dying under the judgment of God so that whoever repents of their sin and flees to him in faith will have forgiveness of sins and God says to you, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. They are gone. I will be merciful toward your iniquities because of the blood of my son. And so we ask, you know, sometimes you might be tempted to ask, oh, really, even me? With all my sins? Can God really forgive me? You know, I, I asked that question many, many years ago when I first heard the gospel. I said, can God really forgive a cockroach like me? And he says, dear friend, I will remember your sins no more. In Christ you are free. Where else can we find such freedom? Who else could give such a gift? Where else could we receive such rest? What else could wash us clean? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're here and you don't know him, I want to call you to come to him. Draw near to him. Find forgiveness of sins and rest for your soul. Our high priest is merciful, he is gracious, and he has sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. We have the promises of a covenant God who says, I will remember your sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great and glorious promises of the new covenant that has been established in and through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason for our confidence and our hope. May we live in light of these better promises. In Jesus' name, amen.